0: well, this is the last Psalm in the first book of the Psalter. So we talked a little bit about this early on, but there are five books, five different sections within the Psalms. And each of these have a little bit of different emphasis, a little bit different flavor. This first book, as we've been walking through it, we've been seeing that these are basically entirely Psalms of David, at least only attributions that are given are to David. So there's some that may have been written by somebody else because they have no, no heading, no indication of who wrote it. But all of them that have a heading belong to David. So in this first section, we've seen these different themes of the kingship, kind of some early themes of the kingship and how the kingship has gone to David, but really ultimately it's the Lord who has to fulfill it. So we saw this in those early 20s um, Psalms. We've seen uh, this conflict he's had with Absalom and with different uh, circumstances in which God saved him kind of at some point in his reign. In fact, a lot of them were actually focused, it seemed like, on Saul and the conflict David had with Saul. And so now we get to the end of this first book, and there are certain indi- like indications within these, these psalms of structures within these books. So for example... Well, let's just, jump, let's just jump straight in, and I'll show you this kind of as we go. So the first section we see here is the friend who helps. The friend who helps. This is verses 1 to 3. So David seems to be in this psalm. He's, he's sick, and he's struggling, and he has these enemies who are trying to overthrow him. And so throughout, he's looking to God, and then he's going to examine his enemies and what's going on there, and then he'll turn back to God in the end. But but clearly there seems to be some sort of health issue that is making him vulnerable, so people are trying to overthrow him. We can't be certain what event this was in the life of David, but I'm sure he had lots of different things like this happen within his rule. So he starts out by crying to God for help because God is the friend who helps. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. So this is a very interesting and unique start to a psalm. Why does he mention here considering the poor? It almost has kind of a proverb sort of a feel, right, of practical wisdom. So why is this present here? In some ways, it doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the psalm. But notice that there's something that isn't unique and it actually should stand out to us again as we've been seeing these themes over and over again. And that's the use of the word blessed. Blessed. In fact, this is a very specific word for blessed. It's the word Ashrei, as opposed to the the more common term Barak. This is this should remind us of the first place in the Psalter where this term was used, which is the very first word in the Book of Psalms. Right, the Book of Psalms in Psalm one starts off with that word blessed. Blessed, blessed is the man. Right, uh, and we see this picture in that first Psalm of stability and tranquility for this man who has sought to follow after God. And then we see it in Psalm 2, at the end of Psalm 2, right, that blessed are those who take refuge in the Messiah. So the start of this book, this first section of the Psalms, had that word very prominently as kind of end caps to those first two Psalms, which are the intro to the book of Psalms. And then at the end of this book, we see it come up again. Now, this isn't the only time that this word blessed is used. It goes on to be used even more. And in fact, Gerald Wilson in his commentary on Psalms points out that these word for blessed, this word blessed, um, the specific term here in in Hebrew, is used at the seams of the books. So in other words, there are you know five different books in Psalms, and at these transition points, this word will often come up. So for example, Psalm 89 has this specific term for blessed. That's the very end of the third book of the Psalter. Psalm 106 has the same thing. It has this word asherah, this word blessed, and that's the end of book four of the Psalter. And then Psalms 144 and 146 also use this term for blessed and this is those are at the end of the fifth book before because the last five verse last five psalms in the book of psalms are sort of this crescendo of praise. So right before they get to that kind of at the end of that section, again we see this word blessed. So this word is so important for understanding what the book of psalms is all about. And you'd have to go back and, and listen to our videos on Psalm one and Psalm two in order to hear more detail about that. But I just wanted to point that out, how important this word is, and how much it forms our view of what the Psalms are trying to do. The Psalms are trying to show us how to find happiness in God. Yes, there's a lot of suffering, a lot of struggle, but ultimately they're about how do you find true blessing, and that comes only from God and from following Him. So now go back to Psalms one and two. Again, we don't have time to to really tell a lot about them, but in Psalm one and two, there's the first Psalm is sort of this wisdom Psalm. It's sort of like a proverb almost. And it's focused on how there is stability in the righteous person, right? He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which bears fruit in its season. Its leaves don't wither. Whatever he does, it prospers. That's Psalm 1. So there's stability for the righteous. And then Psalm 2 is a picture of the conquering king. So it's a messianic psalm, very clearly, referring to this messianic king who's going to come and rule over the nations and how everyone needs to bow to him and submit to him. And so we see a focus on the Torah in Psalm 1 and then a focus on the Messiah in Psalm 2. And the picture for both of those is of this stable and this conquering uh, condition, I guess you could say. But here there's a strong contrast. In this Psalm, David, who is the anointed one at this point in history, and of course is the the ancestor of Jesus, he is not stable and he is not victorious. He seems anything but that. And so David is reminding himself of the truth that he knows, which is that there's blessing for the one who follows God. Even though it might not seem like it currently, God is going to deliver him. So he, he says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now that term considers is a wisdom term. It, it means uh, an, as, an aspect of wisdom which allows somebody to respond rightly So it's not just that he thinks about the poor, it's that he understands how to respond to people who are in poverty in order to help them, in order to bless them. The poor could also be translated as the weak. So these are those who are without strength or without resources or without health. They're, They're those who are needy. And so David is saying, you bless the one who considers the poor. So what does it mean to consider the poor? I think we can take it in a pretty straightforward way, which is just offering aid to those who are in need. Uh, when I first read this, and I, I know some commentators kind of think the same thing, which is that David is almost invoking God's help; that David himself is the the poor one, and he's saying it's a good thing to help those who are poor, which could be true. But I think he's also just stating a fact of life: that that blessed is the one who helps those who are poor. I was talking to some some folks at a coffee shop the other day that just happened to start a conversation with me, which. By the way, I never want to start a conversation with people at a coffee shop, but I always enjoy it after I do. And um, they were telling me how their work was with the poor, that the homeless in their in our context here in Santa Cruz. And we started to have a conversation, and I was telling them about, okay, our church is, you know, only five years old at this point. And man, we really need to strengthen our work with the poor. We have some great people who go and serve the poor, you know, on a weekly basis and, and give them tangible. Um, tangible resources for their needs and also give them the gospel. We we don't just do one, we do both. But I I not enough of us, I think, and not enough of our focus has been on serving the poor. What the Bible says about serving the poor means that it should be central to what we do. And that's my hope, is that as we grow as a church, we're going to get better and better at this and become a powerhouse of giving to the poor. Listen to a few verses from the Proverbs about how we need to help the poor, how this is an obligation. It's a duty for those of us who have been blessed by God. Proverbs 21, 13 says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. That's a that's a scary thing, right? It should cause us to, to really consider how we can give to those who are in need and not simply ignore them. Now, I don't think this is a, this means we should give to every person who asks us for money because a lot of people are, asking for wrong motives or anything like that. But but we should be very intentional and aim to supply the needs of the poor if we can. Proverbs 29, 14 says, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. So David is reflecting this in this psalm, right? He's saying, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. I think he's saying here, I'm I've considered the poor. As a king, I, I want to my throne to be established. I want to be secure. I want to have a healthy and whole reign in my kingdom. Proverbs 19, 17, just one more proverb here. It says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Now that's a It kind of opens up a lot of questions theologically. It almost sounds like God is in need from what we have. And of course, this kind of metaphor here of lending to the Lord, it's it's not saying that at all. It's simply saying if you were to you know, let someone who is of infinite wealth and infinite resources borrow from you, you know you'll get it back, right? If you're with someone who's a billionaire and they don't have their wallet on them and they ask you for five bucks, you know they're going to pay you back. They might pay you back more than you gave to them because they have that kind of resources. So when you when you give to the poor, you're not losing your money, you're letting God have it for a season and you'll be repaid for it. Now, of course, we want to be careful of how we understand this uh, this reciprocity of this blessing, right, of that you receive when you give to the poor. I wouldn't confuse this and think that if you give the poor $10, that God will give you $10,000. That's not necessarily how it works. But God sees everything that you do. He, he, He holds on to that, and one day he will reward you. And in eternity, you will have blessings because of what you have given to God and to those who are in need. It's kind of of like how we see in Matthew 5, 7, right? In the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. There's just kind of a a way of life that, that receives mercy from God. And so you're blessed if you consider the poor and you're actively helping them. In fact, in the day of trouble, the Lord will deliver you. God watches over you. And we'll see more of this throughout the psalm of how God protects those who are who are his people, who are righteous. He goes on to talk more about how God treats the one who's poor in verse two. He says, the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. So God sustains his life. He has a reputation of being blessed. People acknowledge that in his life. He's protected from those who seek to harm him. And when he is sick, when he's in desperate need, God will restore him. This is the kind of blessing that comes to the person who follows after God and does what God calls him to do. So verses 1, to 3, we see the friend who helps. Um, we see the, the one who helps the poor. But even more importantly, it's God who will help him. And then in verses 4 through 9, we see the friend who hurts, the friend who hurts. So this is where David's getting more raw and speaking about his own suffering. He says in verse 4, As for me, I said, O oh Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. So he's going to talk about how he has all these enemies who are against him, but he's in a very fragile state. Not only is he sick, it seems like, because of verse 3, But he's also sinned, and so he's had to confess that. And so this is interesting because this seems to be the priority for him. It's to confess, to say, I had, you know, some of my suffering here is due to my own actions. And so he confesses to God. Um, We're going to see, kind of revisit this in a little bit. Verse 5, he says, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? So his enemies are waiting for tragedy to strike and for God to finish him off. Uh, they think he's going to die, right? And they not only think he's going to die, but they think that somehow his line, his his progeny, his descendants will be blotted out. Now we know if, as we read, study the whole of scripture, right? If David dies and doesn't have descendants, then God's plan dies with him because God's whole plan rests on David. You can see our videos on 2 Samuel 7, right? In that section of scripture, such an important passage. We see that God has put the entire plan of salvation on the Davidic throne and on the Davidic dynasty. So a savior has to come from David. So this is, this is important, right? Just your name perishing, meaning you don't have any kids to carry on your family name. That's a huge deal for the Jewish people because they understand that the Messiah is going to come from their descendants, but it's more important for David specifically as he carries that promise of God in his veins, so to speak. Verse six and seven, he says, well, when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. So these enemies, when they're with David, they'll just say what he wants to hear, right? Empty words, sort of vain words, but they're actually planning something and they're going out and they're telling people about it, right? So telling it abroad is they're spreading all these things. Right? They're trying to undermine him through telling all of these things to other people. And, and they're, they're whispering, right? And they're imagining the worst for me. They're, they're, the idea there is kind of like they're fantasizing of the worst for me. They want bad things to happen to me. Verse 8, they say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. This may actually be translated, when it says like a deadly thing, it may actually be translated best as a thing of Belial, Belial, which maybe that's not a familiar term for you, but we see it in scripture. Belial was a reference uh, to a demon. Some people say it's a reference to Satan himself. Uh, I'm not totally sure on that. But what I think what they're saying here is he's being conquered by evil, right? If, so if, if demons are overtaking him, then that means that God's not on his side. Um, he's been handed over and so they say, he will not rise again. He's fallen for the last time. He's down for the count. And so they're waiting for their chance to, to have that victory over him. Verse 9, he says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So he notice this is interesting here. He says, this is, this is obviously the most famous verse in this passage. So he says, it's my close friend. So he's speaking of a companion, right? So someone who's close and intimate with him. And then he says, my friend in whom I trusted. So this is somebody that he's maybe confided in, or he's leaned on, or he's seen as trustworthy. And then he says, who ate my bread? So they had meals together. Well, I mean, why is that important? Well, in this context, it was a big sign of fellowship. So if you were walking to someone's house, you had a meal with them, it was a sign that you were in close fellowship, right? Think of how Jesus ate with sinners, and that was a big deal, right? Because it's showing that he has some love and affection and connection with them. But it's not just they 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 ate bread together, it's that they ate my bread, right? So this person, this individual ate my bread. So what he's saying here is David has been the benefactor of this individual. So he's welcomed him into his palace, he's put set a seat for him at the royal table, and he's given freely of his food to this, this individual. And yet, and, and this this was supposed to create a relationship of loyalty, right? So you'd have a, a benefactor. Or a lord or a king, and then they would be generous, and then it was expected that the person would then be loyal. And yet David is frustrated here because even though he's been generous, it was met with betrayal. And then it say, he says that that person lifted up his heel against me. Now again, this is maybe strange language for us. Um, it should when you hear that word heel. Again, if you've you've kind of walked through the Bible with us, you know just how important that word is, specifically in reference to the first time it's used, which is Genesis 3.15. That's the first time it's used. Let me read that for us if you don't know it. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's that word, heel, right? So... What is this all about? Well, this is right after the fall. So Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit, and they were commanded not to, and they were told that they would die. And Satan, in the form of the serpent, has come in and deceived them, and told them to take of the fruit. And so God responds with this curse on the serpent, and he curses the land, right? And then he gives um, these words to the, the the man and to the woman. But he's, he also here responds immediately to the betrayal of humanity with a promise of grace. And what he's saying here in Genesis 3:15 is that there's going to come a descendant of the woman, a seed is, is the actual word in Hebrew, or offspring of the woman who will crush this serpent forever. So he will the picture here is obviously of a someone stomping on a snake's head. So there's damage to his heel in the process, but there's a fatal wound given to the serpent, and so he's done forever. And we know this is a prophecy of Christ and his victory on the cross that he was wounded, right? He died, but he was he didn't stay dead. But in his death, he will defeat uh, he defeated sin and death, and he'll defeat Satan forever. So why is why is this important for this circumstance in in verse nine? Well, what he's saying, I think, is that this close friend or this person that he trusted wants to flip the script on him. So David David is not simply another believer. Again, he is he holds the line of the Messiah. So he is currently the offspring of the woman. He's the one who's supposed to be be in this line that will crush Satan forever. And yet right now these people who are acting in this evil way want to crush him. So, so it, it, it's this reversal. They want to be the ones crushing David and defeating him. So I think he's bringing to mind that promise, but he's speaking about how unfair he feels this is. And Psalm, and then let's look at the next, the, the last section here. As we'll see, this kind of rounded out verses ten to twelve. We see the delight of God, the delight of God. So we've seen the friend who helps, which is God, in verses one to three. The friend who hurts. Um, in verses four through nine, and then the, the, the light of God in verses 10 to 12. Verse 10, it says, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. So he turns from his focus on the enemies who want to hurt him and instead looks to God who supports and helps David. And this is amazing, right? Remember, in verse four, David had said that he had sinned. So so he, he acknowledges that he's done things against God in rebellion to God, and therefore we could you know, imply from that he's not deserving of the friendship of God. And yet, even though David has sinned against God, God still helps him. The, the, the friend he had that he's helped is only sinning against him, but God is a much better friend. He's, he's faithful, he's gracious, even when we don't deserve it, right? Well, by definition, grace is that we don't deserve it. So if, you, if you're in that kind of situation, right, you feel as if somebody is hurting you, even though you've been kind to them, maybe you should spend time thinking about how God treats you, <laughs> even though you've sinned against him over and over again, whatever you might feel in that situation, however much you might feel sinned against, you've sinned against God way more, right? If we're, if we're honest, of course, we know that's true. That's easily true. And even though you've been an unfaithful friend, God still gives grace and forgiveness, it's incredible, right? And this I think, should change our perspective quite a bit on situations like that. So he says, but it's interesting here because he's, he's you know asking for the grace of God so that he can repay them. So it sounds like he just he wants revenge here, but I think that's the wrong way to read it. He doesn't want just a vindictive revenge, right? Remember, David is the king. So he has authority and he needs to use it in the right way. And he, I think he needs to do this, not simply so he can feel good, but he needs to bring justice in that situation because other people are going to be affected by evil present in his kingdom. I think that's probably what he's he's saying here. It's not just petty revenge. It's I want to straighten something out uh, in the kingdom that, that I'm in charge of. So this the verb here for repay them, kind of enforcing this, it relates to the word shalom. So it's a, it's a verbal form of the word shalom, which is this word for wholeness, right, and peace. So I think that indicates to us that he wants to have wholeness and order within his kingdom. That's the goal. It's not, it's not vindictive revenge, which, of course, we see the Bible condemning so often. Verse 11 says, By this I know you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. I love this. So he recognizes the delight of God, that God delights in him, that God loves him and delights in him. And he says, here's a proof of it, that I know that those who want my destruction, they're not going to triumph. One of the ways that we can, one proof of God's love for you is that you can never be destroyed by your enemies. I mean, yes, of course, people can inflict a lot of pain on us now. God often allows that. We see numerous examples in scripture, obviously, But I think if, with the perspective we have on this side of the cross, we understand that no one can harm us eternally. And that should be a great comfort to us. It made me think, as I was reading this, it made me think of the the famous words of Justin Martyr, one of the church fathers, that he said when the church was very young and facing extreme persecution. Right? He said, you can kill us, but you cannot harm us. You can kill us, but you cannot harm harm us. I love that, right? So the worst that humans can do is destroy the body. And Justin Martyr's pointing out that no no ultimate harm is done. God will resurrect that body and God will obviously vindicate whatever whatever's going on in eternity. So it's a great comfort. Verse 12, he says, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. So he It seems like at this point he's already delivered in this trial. Again, it's unclear if he's saying I'm already delivered or if he's just trusting in what God is going to do. But it's probably that this psalm has been reflecting back on the suffering. It's been a meditation on that. And now he has resolution, right? You upheld me. Now, how can he say you upheld me because of my integrity in light of verse 4 where he said that he sinned? Well, I think... The the integrity that he has is because he's repented of his sin. It's not saying that he's never sinned. He's saying I have wholeness of being, uh, I'm I'm being honest and open because I've turned away from that. And so he he knows that because of that, he's going to be in the presence of God forever. He's going to be able to see God, enjoy him, and receive the benefits and the blessings that come with knowing God. So that's that's kind of the end of the song. And then we see an end cap here in verse 13, which is the end of the first book of Psalms. Um, this is, That's kind of the, the indication of, yeah, it flows out of this psalm, but it really is sort of wrapping up this entire first book. And so he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So he says, Blessed be the Lord. This, is, this isn't the same word as blessed at the beginning of this psalm, but it's, it's the idea of, it's a similar idea, and he's saying, I want to give back to God. I want to, to repay him or return to him what he's given to me. And so he's saying, I want God to be blessed. And God is from everlasting to everlasting. God is unchanging and always worthy of our praise. And that's the foundation for everything we do is that God does not change. And then he ends by saying amen and amen, which, of course, is an expression of agreement. It's saying, I agree with that. I confirm that. Uh, we see this this word amen is in Hebrew is then, I think, turned into Aramaic as well in Greek. It's sort of trans, transliterated. And we see this whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, right? It's, it's literally, amen, amen, is, is what he's saying. <clears throat> now, what do we do with a psalm like this? I mean, obviously, there's so much practical wisdom we could gain from this. Okay, how do we deal with when we're going through these times? How do we deal with when we're, when we're suffering, or we're sick? All these things that we've seen in other psalms. But one clear connection is, again, verse 9 of this psalm is the most famous verse because it's found on the mouth of Jesus, or in the mouth of Jesus, in John 13, 18. So as Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples, he foretells the the betrayal of Judas. And he says in John 13, 18, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So in this case, it's very literal, right? Because Jesus is giving bread to them and Judas is going to betray him. To some degree, all the disciples will betray him, but Judas is the the main one who, who hands him over to, to destruction. And it's important because Jesus was betrayed by his friend. He faces this betrayal um, that mirrors David's own betrayal to show that he is the fulfillment of the Davidic line, that he is the true king. And he's betrayed so that we could be welcomed in by the Father, that we as the the transgressors, as the betrayers of God by our actions, can now be welcomed in. He suffers that so that we can be received. He's hurt by his closest friends so that we could become friends of God. It's an amazing thing. And so we can have the promise we see in Romans sixteen twenty, which is the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So because Jesus has won, now we're invited into that victory. And we won't be crushed ultimately. We will be the one who gets to crush evil and crush Satan by God's grace forever.